G'day and welcome to Lunch Money, the Christmas 2021 edition. Uh, Lunch Money is the social media and online home for uh, workouts uh, and capital raising professionals. You know, I've, because I haven't been doing this every week, I've got out of the uh, I've got it out of the uh, the habit. Um, but there you go. Uh, we've got it's been an interesting year. We're, we're at the end of the year, and there's been I guess winners and and people that necessarily haven't won so much. If you're in the mortgage business, you've 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 smashed it out of the park. There's been so much. Um, uh, work around, you know, we've seen property prices escalating and, and anyone anyone riding uh, loans against property have done really well. Equipment finance people have done uh, okay uh, as well. Um, if you're in the cash flow finance space like yourselves, you've, your number one competitor has turned out to be the ATO and the federal government, and that's another story. Uh, if you're in M&As, you've been knocking it out of the park. And of course, if you're in corporate restructuring, um, that has been uh, a different kettle of fish as well. So what we're going to do today is we're going to try and uh, read the tea leaves and see what is uh, in store for us as we swing into 2022. And we're going to do that with uh, some hard data um, prepared uh, for us by our first guest, Patrick Schweitzer, who's been with us before. And then we're going to talk to uh, Darren Anderson and Scott Langdon. Uh, who are going to help us understand uh, understand the data and break it down a little bit. Without further ado, I'm going to uh, introduce Patrick Schweitzer. G'day, Patrick. How are you? Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me on. Now, Patrick, you're the data guru, uh, is what I've called you. Uh, you are also the director at Alares. Tell us what has been keeping you busy lately. Yeah, look, it's certainly interesting times at the moment. We've been very busy helping our users uh, identify and manage their credit risk, both from uh, in terms of their customers and their suppliers. And we just um, just in the last little while, it, it seems uh, certainly the uh, the amount of concern uh, out there generally has just started to pick up again uh, a little bit, and we're we're seeing a bit of that play through in our data as well. Now, um, what uh, talking to you a little bit before we started? I mean, you. I mean, Alares is a relatively new company. How long? How old is Alares? Look, we've been going for uh, nearly five years now, so yeah. four to five years. Okay, but you you're still growing effectively. I mean, you, you we, we still, are, yes, yeah. So I guess if you were a, a mature business, uh, I mean, I, I guess you're sort of semi mature. But if you're a fully mature business, then how how you perform would track the economy, perhaps, but but you're still sort of uh, powering through growth. So, so tell us a little bit about how you've grown in the last little while. Just give us a, a good news story. Yeah, look, um, when COVID first hit, uh, one thing that it did is it put risk management um, right in the front of the uh, of people's minds and, and right in the middle of the radar where <clears throat> sometimes when things are very bullish, uh, risk management sort of pushed to the side a little bit, but um, it really brought it to the fore and uh, quite a few businesses out there were, were really clamouring to to understand what else they can do to understand and mitigate their risk. So um, that, that certainly put a bit of a spotlight on us um, and it's uh, it's helped our growth for sure. Yeah, I guess uh, you know. I mean, we it's it's been so long. We've been in this in this dark mist of uh, of COVID. You know, Mark one, two, and three. We're, we're hammering through the the Greek alphabet, and I'm very very happy that uh, all of all of you non Greeks out there are, are getting a bit of an education with respect to that. But um, 
you know, when, when it, it has been, it's always been a question of how much risk is out there. You know, how, you know, we, we there are this, there seems to be growth. Businesses that are growing have been uh, on the receiving end of, uh, particularly if you're in retail, it's actually been on the receiving end of the government handouts. Uh, you know, you don't, you're still ratcheting up the risk. So, so there has been an increasing appetite for 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 your sort of products that that assess risk. Yeah, and it, look, it was really interesting at the very onset of COVID. The the general perception of of risk was very high, where there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, a lot of businesses expected the risks to be very high, and they uh, acted accordingly. Then, as all of the stimulus uh, started flowing through, that kind of subsided a little bit, where people started seeing uh, less risk. And I remember it was only, <clears throat> I think back in September was the first time I had a phone call with somebody where I asked them what they're doing about their credit risk. And they said, what credit risk? There is no credit risk. And that, that kind of um, indicated to me that we might be sort of teetering. Well, you know, well I've gone a little too far the other way. Yeah, I mean, I've got to say that, uh, that you know, I, I think the performance on receivables, the receivables have collected a lot better. In fact, they've probably outperformed pre-COVID, you know, particularly with the stimulus, people were paying their bills, particularly given that a lot of them don't seem to be paying the ATA. But look, we will come back to that. We'll just start, uh, we'll introduce our next guest and we'll put you back in the waiting room, Patrick. And our next guest is Darren Anderson. And Darren is the Managing Director at ERA Legal. Uh, I guess, Darren, you have had the luxury of, of uh, getting more into the, the property lending space. So that's probably gone well for you this year. Yeah, it has, Nick. Um, it, was, it was pretty tough after the first uh, lockdown. Um, thing, things got a bit tough. Um, but um, over the course of the last 12 months, the, the uh, property lending um, market has, has really um it really skyrocketed so we've that that's been a big big savior uh for us um i think we're, we're back averaging we're doing about 100 million uh, in financial settlements a month at the moment wow and that's all private that's all private book of course that's all, all yeah funds all, all, and, all, uh... all non-bank lending across a you know array of of, of lenders in, including um construction finance construction finance is pretty fluid at the moment right when you say it's pretty fluid it's obviously pretty fluid in the non-bank space it's it may not be so fluid in in the banks in the bank space yeah well i think yeah it's fluid in the non-bank space that's why we're getting so many bills for it yeah yeah i mean and, and are you are you able to sort of gauge uh you know the, the deals that you're looking at you know the refinance versus you know acquisitions and and, and development is it what is there any, it's skewing any particular direction uh, the, the 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 construction finance isn't isn't um refinance it, it's usually uh, original original loans uh, because the the developers and builders are finding it difficult difficult getting finance from the banks um, the the other non-bank lending work, the real property loans, it's often it's a bit of a mix, you know, um, probably fifty percent refinance, fifty um, percent uh, original lending. 
And I just want to say, I, I see Dr. Peter Ellis's comment, and I'm not touching that one. It refers to certain missing letters of the Greek alphabet. I, I see you, Peter. I'm not. I'm not touching that. Um, so, D Darren, um, the obviously everybody in corporate restructuring, uh, you know, the. the they're generally, there's not a lot of it around. There's not a lot of VA activity. There's an uptick in liquidations, and we'll, we'll come to that. Um, but but a lot of lawyers say that their commercial litigation has still been pretty strong. Yeah, commercial litigation has been really strong as well. So here at ERA, we have a uh, we were traditionally a commercial litigation practice with a with an insolvency focus. Um, obviously, the the new insolvency work uh, has been very dry uh, ever since COVID hit. Uh, which is, uh, as we all uh, appreciate, is the opposite of what uh, to what people thought was going to happen. Uh, so there's not much of that, but there's still uh, some legacy um, litigation and and looking at what we've been doing at ERA. If we've been looking at uh, liquidators' files that they may have passed over um, due, due to them being busy, and we've actually picked up a fair bit of work um, through opening up. Uh, dormant liquidator files, um, which is which has been um, a good source of work for us. So actions that they haven't pursued in the past, you know, yeah, the, the file, and, the... and actions they may not have thought about. So you know, yeah. we we've, we've got a service here at ERA where um, we'll go along to uh, insolvency practitioners' office and uh, and ha and have a look through through their files and see if we can identify any any claims. Um, that may have been overlooked, and that that's been uh, a good so source of work over the um, over the lockdown. And just just very quickly, is, does litigation funding play a role in any of that, or or, or not? You know, it seems like there's a new litigation fund up popping up every week now. Um, so yeah, fortunately, uh, we we've been able to get a fair bit of uh, litigation funding in those matters, which is which is great, rather than. Um, do matters, do all matters as we traditionally would do on a purely speculative basis, and, and wait to get get paid uh, over a number of years. So the um, the litigation uh, funding it's also quite fluid. Uh, I'd love to ask you whether or not you think it should be capped at thirty percent, but we'll leave that at the moment because uh, that's very controversial. We'll just pop you back in the waiting room, and we'll introduce our next guest, Scott Langdon. G'day, Thanks, Scott. Luke. How are you? Yeah, really well, mate. And uh, Merry Christmas to all your listeners and watchers. It's uh, been Indeed. a hard year for us all. So I think everybody's oh, yeah. certainly looking forward to some time off and, and spending time with family, friends and loved ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For those of us that, that you know, may or may not have spent too much time there already. Um, Scott, you're a partner at, at Cordamentha. You've been uh, on our show a couple of times before and we're always very grateful uh, for you to come along and share your wisdom. Um, you, you, Your business has transformed a little bit in the last sort of 18 months. It's less corporate restructuring and more, you know, capital advisory or how would you describe it? Yeah, Nick, thanks. Um, yeah, so, so the way we would think about uh, the last 24 months and, and the way our, uh, our business is structured into three separate boxes. And one is your traditional uh, insolvency and restructuring advice and investigating accountants reports. A uh, second is in regulation investigations, uh, regulatory work. Uh, and then the third would be in uh, M&A of both debt and, and equity broadly. Our services fit into one of those three boxes. And it's fair to say that this uh, 12 months in particular, but 24 months, the uh, traditional insolvency restructuring advice has formed a very, very small part of our practice. 
Um, interestingly, the regulatory side of our practices increased uh, and doing a lot of dispute resolution, dispute resolution work, advocacy work for trying to mediate outcomes. Uh, and then the third part of that M&A with so much cash uh, being around in the market, refinancing organisations, finding new debt, finding additional debt, um, it's become a really big part of our business and also uh, selling uh, equity of businesses as well. So yeah, that's how we think about our business. But the last 24 months, the, the lack of insolvency and restructuring work has made up for the regulatory and dispute type work and, and a far, far, a very big growth in uh, the M&A of debt and equity. Well, I guess your involvement with Virgin is a is a classic example uh, of some of what you're talking about, and definitely there's an overlap between uh, skills in insolvency, particularly as you get further up the food chain, I suppose, and M and A. You know, when it comes to all the due diligence and figuring out what's really going on in a business, uh, I guess on you know on both sides of the transaction, buyers and sellers. Yeah, absolutely. Particularly I buyers, think, I suppose. Yeah, I think both both sides as well, um, because. Um, we, we generally, everyone in our industry, whether you're a financier, a lawyer, a, um, an insolvency practitioner, uh, we come in in times of chaos and times of challenge. And that's what we've always done in our industry. And, and what we are very good at as an industry is fi focusing on what really matters and uh, having a really critical view on the financial position. So that means that um, we can quickly assess whether uh, on a buy side, what's really important and tr try and facilitate a transaction as opposed to worrying about a um, hundred different things, what are the top 30 things we need to focus on and um, and getting the, the right structures in place to make sure that um, the buyer or the seller, depending on who we're acting for, is putting their best foot forward. But it's that critical analysis and it's that ability to focus on what really matters and really quickly get to the root causes of um, opportunities and also challenges. Now, when we... Um... At the beginning of COVID, you, you, you're, you're good at uh, coining a phrase, the, the Scott Langdon, uh, you know, trademark term, terminologies. And you, you came up with the elegant dismount. I don't know if you remember yeah. that one. Uh, but we haven't really seen so much elegant dismounting, have we? The elegant dismount was the idea that uh, under the cover of COVID, you could just quietly, uh, you know, put your, you know, businesses that maybe weren't performing, you know, you, you could, you could, uh, climb out of them without any loss of face, but that that hasn't really happened. And has it become the elegant dismount has turned into you know the elegant M and A, or, or what? Or, or do you think that they're all just waiting? Yeah, I think that uh, we did see a couple, uh, especially early doors. I think in in twenty twenty, we saw some elegant dismounts of people exiting uh, the market uh, under the cover of COVID. But definitely, you're right, Nick. We haven't seen anywhere near as much as what was what I had expected, and I think what the market had expected. And I think it's simply uh, driven by the liquidity, whether it's government support, stimulus, landlord support, ATO, forgiveness. Um, so therefore, these zombie companies that might have otherwise done an elegant dismount, they, go, they say, you know what, I've actually got cash. I've got options. I can extend my working capital. You know what, I might keep going. And uh, I think it's the, the access to cash, the extending of terms and the forgiveness or the very, very generous terms from financiers that has enabled them to sort of hang out a little bit longer than what we probably previously would have anticipated. But um, do I think there'll be more elegant dismounts in 2022? Um, I think 2022 is going to be a really challenging year. I think businesses are going to find next year much more difficult than the year we've, uh, we've just got, got through, ironically. Yeah, I guess, I mean, the thing about all this extra cash, and again, the, you know, the government's, uh, you know, extending its loan scheme by by uh, by six months, uh, you know, it's a, a matter of, you know, are you are we just giving someone money so that they can sit at the poker table for an extra 
an extra little while, you know, to see, or is that money being invested in their in their businesses to, to make them better businesses? And there's a whole a whole debate we could have around that. But look, we might we might uh, tackle that as we go through the chart. So listen, why don't we bring everybody back? Uh, and let's ask Patrick to um, to hit hit off with his first chart. Let's let's see what you've got for us, Patrick. Yeah, thanks, Nick. So, so what, what we're looking at here is basically monthly insolvencies and the orange bars there show uh, typical numbers pre-COVID and the blue bars show uh, the current numbers. So what, what really stands out here is that in November, um, it was basically the first month in, in the last six months where there's been an increase. It was about a twenty percent increase over the October numbers. So, so just back to um, what we spoke about a minute ago, where the perception of risk had had waned quite a bit, and what we've seen is just in the last month or so, it started to pick up again. Where uh, we're definitely seeing and hearing a bit more concern. Um, do, do you think the is the optimism misplaced, or or you know is Look, there? Oh, I think um, to a certain extent it is in the sense that we're seeing we're seeing the tide turn a little bit already, um, even with the ATO still uh, basically not doing anything. Um, so even with the ATO on the sideline, we're starting to see the tide turn uh, a little bit. And you could only imagine that once the ATO does sort of re-enter the fray, it's... Um, yeah, it's going to be quite challenging, as, as Scott said, for a number of businesses. Well, well, just for our podcast listeners, I better explain this graph. So we've got a graph here that's got, uh, it compares uh, 2021 insolvencies for July, August, September, October, and November, but it's also got a composite of 2017 through 2019 being the, the three years prior to COVID. And, and what it shows is that there's quite a gap between the number of insolvencies during July, August, September and even October, um, and as a matter of fact, insolvencies have been declining in 2021 until you get to November, and in November there's a jump up in insolvencies, and in fact, November, uh, the, the blue, which is 2021, is, seems to be starting to catch up with the orange. So, Darren, do those, do those numbers surprise you at all? Uh, they don't surprise me. I was always thinking the blue was going to come back a lot a lot quicker. They don't surprise me anymore, I should say. But uh, um, yeah, I, I thought the blue, blue might start to creep up. Um, I expect in the new year, um, we'll be back, um, back with probably more uh, insolvencies than we might have had same time a couple of years ago, pre-COVID. Uh, they're going to have to work their way out of the woodwork at some point. Uh, and I, I think after the election, uh, which I think is going to be in around March or thereabouts, uh, after the election, um, the ATL will probably start on the recovery process, I, I would imagine, uh, and, and things will pick up. One, one thing of interest, I was speaking to an insolvency practitioner last week uh, who um, ha has a particular focus on uh, safe harbour work, and uh, Scott might be able to tell us what his view is about this or his experience, but the safe harbour work has essentially dried up completely uh, over the lockdown. Hmm. 
Absolutely. And I, that maybe just as an observation, Nick, is that we, we got the pre-COVID numbers and we've got the COVID numbers. If you actually got the, the pre-GFC numbers from over a decade ago, that bar would be probably four times the size of the yellow number. And we've had a decade of declining insolvencies as a, as a nation as interest rates have become lower. And, and uh, it's not just a nation, national thing, it's a global um, fact. And uh, the data is overwhelming. As interest rates have gone down, cash has become more available. There have been less insolvency events. So in my prediction of what next year looks like, there's two sort of different views. One is that we've actually got a decade to make up and that pendulum might finally swing with a bit of interest rate pressure and a little bit of pressure from the ATO. Um, but the flip side is that, you know, it feels like Australians and its small businesses are actually feeling quite wealthy at the moment. We've had two years of property prices increases and depending where you are in the country, your, your, your collateral supporting your SME loan might have gone up by 30%. Um, the data shows that um, Australian banks are sitting on more cash than they've ever before. So uh, the individual has got savings more than they've ever had before because they've been propped up by government stimulus. So I've got on one view, I think that the pendulum might swing really hard next year. We've got a decade of a very low period of interest rates and low period of insolvency. But the flip side is um, that uh, people do have wealth. 30% property prices broadly increased over the last two years does give um, small businesses greater optionality, optionality than what they would have had beforehand. Well, there's no doubt that in the past, and I'm going, I'm thinking back into the pre-GFC times when property prices were increasing, and 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 even then there was you know, there was innovation in the mortgage market, and that was competing with with uh, with insolvency at the small business end because you know instead of facing their problems and restructuring their businesses, people were able to borrow against the family home and and kick the can down the road. I'm, I'm yeah, it's, there's a couple of interesting things. Um, that you that you say there, Scott. I mean, I for one thing, you know, leaving aside the fact that you say the disparity pre-GFC is much greater, uh, even just on these numbers here, there's a gap between 2021 and I've said this before and the average of the previous three years. Uh, theoretically, you know, that gap represents a lot of companies that that are overdue for for, for restructuring, um, and uh, you know. The, the other thing is, I was thinking, you know, we've had Warren Hogan on the show once earlier this year, and he's the uh, chief economist at Judo Bank. Um, and, and I know that he talks about how much cash there is, you know, sitting on balance sheets, uh, and he tends to be more optimistic about things. Um, so, I, I, but I think he would concur with some of your observations there. Um, and I think he would say, he, he's done studies of, of insolvencies globally uh, since the GFC. And I just wonder whether, with, with all the money printing since then, it's, it's held things up. All right, listen, let's, the other just quick thing I wanted to ask both Scott, well, everybody really, we'll start with you, Scott, and then we'll go back down. Those numbers, what I'm seeing, and this is only anecdotal, it's more liquidations being companies that are closing the doors and, and good night nurse versus voluntary administrations where people are, are just, uh, you know, calling time with their creditors while they reorganise their businesses. Uh, is, do you, what, do you, what do you think about that, Scott? Do you, well, my fear has always been that, that businesses disappear forever as opposed to reorganise, restructure and, and power on. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think that's a really sage observation that companies aren't going into voluntary administration, then trying to pull a data company arrangement out or, or try and sell their business. Companies are, and in that SME in particular, but broadly are going straight into, into liquidation because they feel like there's no optionality. That debt wall 
has just got bigger and bigger over the last two years where they've got an ATO debt, they've probably got a landlord debt, they've extended suppliers, et cetera, et cetera. That debt wall has now got too big that they can't even see a way of restructuring. And I think that, that that's a trend we'll definitely see in uh, in the year to come. And, and it, just picking up on the, the idea that there are, are there these zombie companies out there, I, I think that you know, the insolvency has to increase for the benefit of the economy. Uh, wage growth seems to be a term that's been played out so regularly um, from our politicians and driving policy um, throughout 2020 and 2021. And um, with uh, zombie companies, it doesn't drive wage growth and it creates stale organisations and it doesn't create productivity. So I, I think there is some good for the economy to see the insolvencies increase to encourage um, productivity and um, that will ultimately lead to wage growth. Well, one of my favourite economists, uh, Schumpeter, uh, talks about creative destruction. Uh, basically, you know, the, 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 in a you know in a market in a market economy, you have uh, companies you know companies fail, but that means that the the resources you know labor and and you know capital are redeployed, and and that is one of the problems that we have is that labor and capital aren't being redeployed. Instead, you've got companies. That, uh, that that are operating really well, competing with these zombie companies. But that's that's another issue. Uh, I, um, uh, Nicholas Bishop asks, uh, says he'd love a, a slide pack, and I would say to anybody who's wondering the same thing, uh, yes, uh, we will make sure that uh, uh, Patrick um, the Alara's latest article is uh, is in our in our show notes. So if you go to the show notes, uh, we'll have the latest write up by Patrick. Um, and uh, we will share that with you, Darren. Are you? Do you think that the is the advice that lawyers are giving more around, um, you know, how to protect your personal assets when the ship goes down, as opposed to how to save the business? Or I don't think the um, when you're not getting the inquiries, Nick. That yeah. that that's the issue. Um, you know, you usually would you'd have pre-COVID, you have people coming to see you from time to time. Um, seeking advice about um, their company potentially being in, in, uh, insolvent, you can give them uh, certain advice, but the, those inquiries just aren't being made at all. So I can't can't really answer the question because the inquiries aren't being made. All right, well, let's let's get to um, Patrick's next slide, um, which is uh, court actions filed by the big four banks. So. Generally, one thing that drives uh, one thing that drives a corporate restructuring activity is, uh, you know, the banks uh, looking to take action against clients that aren't aren't performing. Um, so, just talk us through these numbers, and maybe, I mean, we, um, if you don't, if it doesn't mean giving away the kernel's secret recipe, I mean, how are these numbers compiled? Yeah. So, what um, what we do is obviously within our data, we track um, court activity. Um, uh, throughout the country in uh, in all of the different jurisdictions. And what we do is we look at um, any matters that are filed by the big four banks and we consolidate that data into, into these graphs. And <clears throat> what you can see here is um, plenty of activity right through to April uh, 2020, which basically marked the time that the banks... Uh, all instituted their, uh, their their loan deferrals and their concessions and what have you, where they basically uh, took the foot right off the pedal in terms of uh, court recoveries. And that stayed that way right up until April this year where the first sort of major wave of um, 
COVID uh, lockdowns and restrictions eased. And we saw that the banks sort of fairly quickly got, got straight back into it in terms of uh, recoveries through the courts. And then interestingly, after July this year, uh, there was a notable drop-off uh, again in August and September, and that coincided uh, directly with the, the extended lockdowns in New South Wales and Victoria. Yep. And we had expected once those lockdowns eased that the banks would again get, get back into it, and, and they certainly have. So October and November uh, have seen um, some, some clear increases again. And we're basically now... Uh, back, yeah, more or less in line with uh, where the banks were pre-COVID. Um, Scott, a firm like Quartermantha would have lots of conversations with the major banks. I mean, what, firstly, what what do you think about those numbers? And do you think? I mean, the bankers that I, I have spoken to some 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 bankers, and they're still sitting on their hands as nearly as I can tell. So these numbers surprise me a little bit. What 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 do you think? Yeah, me too. There's no doubt that that's, uh, that increase is a little bit more prevalent than what I would have expected. Uh, from what we, we see in the market. And without doubt that banks have, have taken a, a longer-term relationship. You tried to work hard with their, their borrowers to ensure that they, they were given every chance of getting through, um, looking at deferrals, uh, uh, definitely taking a good long-term relationship perspective with their borrowers and being very engaging. And, uh, in fact, uh, Nick, I think a number of the, the workout teams uh, within the, the banks have actually uh, reduced the size of their practices throughout 2021. So it's slightly surprising to see that that increase. But uh, And one of the reasons that we'll probably talk to it a bit later is that the government guarantee uh, around new loans and, and to work with the banks to facilitate new money into SMEs. So that's another reason why I'm a bit surprised by it. Um, and just, just a, a question I'm curious about, Scott. I was talking to someone uh, who, who had a theory that the files were being managed more in risk areas of banks as opposed to workout areas. Does that, what, what do you say about that? I think each of the, each bank has their own unique modus operandi of working um, with, with distressed uh, borrowers. Uh, some have very early inter intervention and uh, it goes to a risk team or it could go to a workout team. They all have a very unique way, but I think, um, but what I think one of the positives for longer term success of transforming distressed companies has been uh, this COVID period has forced banks, financial institutions, institutions to have front end conversations with their workout team a lot more, a lot more aggressively and a lot more directly than what they've ever had before. Because so many of the borrowers, you know, faced financial challenges when COVID hit. So I think for the longer term, better outcomes, uh, the banks are actually better streamlined. They're having better conversations more broadly which I think can only be a good outcome for borrowers and uh, to enable them to, to get through their financial challenges. Uh, Darren, do these numbers surprise you at all? Would you, is this what you're seeing in the court lists? And, and um, I mean, I, I wonder, I, I was expecting that we would see more of this activity in the non-banks uh, as the non-banks have been refinancing uh, the kinds of exposures were more likely to become problematic. What, what, do, you, what do you think? Yeah, they, they surprised me a a little. Um, my my understanding was the bank was, was going to uh, dovetail in behind the ATO and the ATO uh, started doing uh, recovery work. Um, they they surprised me a little. I'm not not really seeing them. It could it could be some you know matters have been filed 
by, by the banks and uh, they're sitting on them, they haven't served them. I don't know why they wouldn't serve them, but um, yeah, they do surprise me a little, but I think again, it will ramp up in the new year. Yeah, you, it, it'll fall off in this December as it always does uh, because the, the, the courts close down, but um, be interesting to know what the makeup of, of those cases are, whether they're possession applications or well, we'll, we'll, we'll ask Patrick maybe to give us give us a bit of a, a behind the scenes there. But just before we do, uh, we just coming to the sort of the final quarter of the show. So if you want to ask any questions of our panel, um, please do. You we will send you out before Christmas one of our lovely Hermes uh, lunch money mugs. And the other one, the other thing is just a reminder to share, like, or subscribe to our show um and so so that you don't miss any of the updates all right so patrick just going back to that graph um you heard the comment from darren it, it, these what are these numbers are these filings versus actual actions or is something is yeah so the, these are basically uh new court filings so that the bulk of them are, are monetary claims um with a few uh winding up applications and a couple of uh, personal bankruptcies uh, sprinkled in as well. But are they necessarily served or...? or... Yeah, look, they, they they generally would be. So once they sort of get filed in court, you would normally serve, you know, sort of around the same time. Um, yeah. So some of these matters may well be um, not due to be heard until sort of sometime in the new year. Right. Um, but they've certainly been uh, lodged lodged in court. Okay, well, look, we are running out of time. So let's go to the next slide, which is this one. Now, this one, you know, this one surprises nobody who is uh, involved in, in, in the corporate restructuring industry. What we've got here is a graph that shows uh, all winding up applications, uh, including the tax office and not the tax office. Uh, the tax office is in orange and uh, all other wind-up applications are in blue. And what you have is pre-COVID, you've got the ATO, uh, certainly with the lion's share, you know, if not sometimes half of the court actions, certainly a very significant portion of them. Um, but then COVID comes along and the orange part of the stacked bar chart almost disappears. Um, so, you know, and maybe anecdotally, maybe I'm here... Maybe everyone's paying their tax. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think there could be a combination of people being cashed up and paying their tax, but I, I don't think so, Darren. I mean, uh, you know, we, we've certainly seen a lot of small businesses, small and medium, particularly sort of the medium, you know, companies that are turning over 10 to 30 million, say, with very large, uh, very large tax debts. Um, what, what do you think? Uh, well, firstly, Patrick, is there anything quickly you want to say about these numbers? Yeah, look, look I, I guess it sort of speaks uh, to itself. But as you said, Nick, uh, historically, the ATOs sort of accounted for, for approximately half of all uh, winding ups. They're, they're still effectively at zero. Um, but what you can see is all of the non-ATO winding ups uh, are basically back to, to where they were pre-COVID, uh, which so, is quite interesting. Scott, what, what do you make of this and what, what do you think the ATO is up to? I think nothing. the um, they're up to nothing. <laughs> I think what's really interesting about this slide is um, how quickly the the non ATO has come back, and because you know, obviously last year we had these restrictions around being able to enforce stat decks and so forth, 
Um, I, I think that it's bounced back really quickly and part of it might be a legacy kind of flush through and, and normalize. But what I think it also shows is that um, people are, who are owed money, they need, the, the working capital challenges of businesses are incredibly challenging at the moment and they're only going to be tougher in 2022 when uh, the supply chain challenges, which are also only at the first phases of. So I think it also shows that businesses out there who do have debts owing to them, they will actively pursue them because they need it for their own own balance sheet. I think that's really interesting I, to me. I just I just wonder whether the ATO, as a result of this and as as a result of the delay, are going to adjust their receivables policy. As um, as you may know, Nick, the ATO has quite an extensive receivables policy, and if you break that policy down. Uh, it, it, to bare bones, what it essentially says is the ATO won't compromise on prime debt. Uh, right. It would rather, if if you if the if a company owed the ATO a hundred million dollars, and the company said all we can do is pay you ninety million, that's the best we can do. The ATO would generally proceed to wind up just for the sake of the extra ten million. Now, because that is that is their policy, they give you plenty of time to pay it. Mm -hmm. uh, but their policy is that they don't get all their prime debt back they proceed uh, to want to wind up. I think that policy will just have to have to change because of the accrued debt. That, 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 that is be... fascinating. Yeah, that's fascinating you say that, Darren. I mean, yeah, you, you quite, I mean, yeah, I've certainly, you know, you know more about it than I do, but yeah, I'm told that, you know, you can do a deal with the ATO that they will waive uh, a portion of the interest, the general interest charge, uh, but they will not touch the principal amount owed. But you're saying that as a result of all that, uh, all you know, once again, you can imagine how much orange there should be on that graph. And if you added that all together, you're saying that they will need to look at maybe, well, it's 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 quite feasible to think they might be looking at actually compromising, compromising the principal. Well, otherwise we'll have to open up some new courts or point a stack of new judges in or registrars in order to deal with the uh the backlog because the, the as that debt accrues in the background and people have forgotten about it you get to a point where they're never going to be able to uh, to pay it so they'll, they'll have to be uh, i'd be surprised if there isn't a policy change um to allow the the ato or the recoveries officers to compromise on prime debt given uh the extraordinary uh build up of debt uh, what, what do you think have. scott yeah, I was going to say at the smaller end of town, I think that we might not see it actually go back to those 2019 levels um, because I do know a lot of borrowers have engaged in payment plans and I think it's, it's a good initiative that the ATO, you can execute a payment plan with the ATO without ever speaking to an ATO employee for mm -hmm. under $100 all online. And um, if you break up those yellow bars, my guess is that probably at least 80% of them would be debts under $100,000. So if those borrowers, or sorry, those um, organisations who have got ATO debt of sub $100,000, they can just do that all online. And that might actually delay uh, delay at the smaller end of town. But fascinating through COVID, you can execute a payment plan with the ATO for under $100,000 without ever speaking to somebody. Well, I think uh, I, I looked at it a couple of, when, when the ATO uh, put out its annual report, uh, I looked at some of those numbers and I think from the top of my head, there was something like 400,000 payment plans in the last financial year. And I think that there was something like 1.4 million payment deferrals. So the stats were huge. Okay, listen, let's hit the last slide before we wrap up.
Uh, talk us through this one. Yeah, so what this shows is court actions filed by the ATO. And, you know, as we know, uh, as soon as COVID hit, basically the numbers sort of fell fell right down to effectively uh, zero. And we've broken this one out into three different categories, um, being winding ups, which we just spoke about, but also money loan claims and personal bankruptcy uh, petitions. And you can see that all three have, have basically gone to to next to nothing and and they're still there so where whereas the banks have started um uh pursuing uh court recoveries again the, the ato is still is still effectively um out of the game but patrick i i note that you exclude the great state of tasmania from your uh reporting data i'm just wondering now that they've got their first they're about to have their first ashes test whether you might include them next year in your um in your reporting data tasmania will be included at some point next year yes <laughs> well uh, if jackie Lamb is watching this podcast she might have something to say uh, apologies to anyone in tasmania but um i can uh, i can certainly vouch for the fact that they that the numbers don't move the needle um too much in in terms of in terms of the graphic can I give a shout out to Jackie Lambie while I'm here? Yeah, uh, please I think do. She's doing, a, she's doing a great job holding the holding the government accountable. Yeah. All right. Well, okay. Uh, Scott, any thoughts on those? Uh, on those? On that, what you're seeing there? Uh, no, nothing. That's uh, that's of interest. Um, I, I think that uh, 2022 will be uh, a challenging time for the ATO in. Um, with the election coming up, the, the, everybody knows that the size of the debt, the ATO is just getting bigger and bigger. And how do they take steps now to collect um, a loan book, which has never been as big as it has before? That's going to be tricky terrain for the ATO and politically tricky over the next 24 months. Well, Darren suggests that they might write some of it off. I think it's going to be a really big question to be had. Uh, I think it's well known that they don't write off core debt. Um, mm. But unless it goes through an insolvency process, uh, I think that's something that absolutely needs to be looked at. Absolutely needs to be looked at. And that's in the spirit of what the ATO has been doing over the last two years. Now, my, my, my sort of spies tell me that at the accountant level, so not the lawyer or the insolvency practitioner level, but just at the suburban accountants are receiving a lot more letters from the ATO inquiring you know, rattling the sabre, if you like, uh, certainly making themselves known. I also was told by somebody that the ATO has been hiring lawyers for their debt recovery area. Have you heard any of these sorts of anecdotes, Scott? Uh, absolutely. There's no doubt there's more correspondence that's come from the ATO to, um, to, uh, to organisations in the back half of this year, reminding them of what their tax position is, encouraging them if they cannot pay their obligations to reach out and, and try and agree a... Um, a, uh, a payment arrangement, but th there have been very li limited uh, notices of demand or or letters of consequence that have been issued and and hiring. Yeah, I think that's uh, I think that it's reasonably well accepted that they are upskilling their staff and and I think that goes back to what I just said around 2022 will be a tricky terrain for the ATO to work within. All right. Well, look. By way of wrap up, we're going to start with you, Scott. When 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 does it happen in 2022? When when do we start seeing uh, a return to normal in the restructuring stats? Is it the final quarter of next year? Is it straight out of Christmas? Do we wait till after the election? What, what's what's your tip? 
I think it'll be a, a very slow uh, return. I don't think it's going to be a step change in 2022-2023. Um, I, I don't think we're going to see a, a booming insolvency market at all. But I do think it's going to be a really tricky market for um, organisations. I think that the uh, the debt stack of businesses has never been higher coming into the year. They're going to have ATO debt, landlord debt, um, supplier debt, uh, potentially over 24 months. So their debt load will be higher. Plus supply chain challenges both leads into a working cap, working capital uh, challenge of how to manage cash flows for for 2022-2023, and I think that will be extremely hard on businesses. And um, I think that the the, uh, the the increase in insolvencies could come from this working capital challenge being too great, and, and organisations saying, you know what, I just can't see myself getting over this debt load, and just managing my day to day cash is really challenging. Businesses well, we, we, will have to. Businesses will have to trade for a long time to make enough profit for the potential uh, debts they've incurred in the past 24 months to pay them back. Well, we, we haven't even touched on inflation. I mean, if 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 inflation really is six or seven percent, and official rates are you know point something, then you know real interest rates are well into the negatives. Uh, and you know, if 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 you know, if in the US or in Europe or, or in Australia, the central banks decide to raise interest rates to counter inflation, because eventually it becomes irresistible. Eventually they have to do something. Uh, then, then, then we'll see. What do you think, Darren? I mean, you've been you've been fairly bearish on on corporate right from the get go. You said that things are going to be very slow for a long time, and you've been spot on. What, what, what do you read for next, the next twelve months? Yeah, I think when when um the Reserve Bank um, starts to be honest about uh, inflation, um, the, the cork's really going to come out, out of the bottle uh, when people realise that they're, um, they're going backwards. You know, I paid, I think, $2.10 for a litre of um, petrol uh, about a week ago. Um, how, how we don't have inflation when all the prices around me seem to be going up on a daily basis i don't know but um you know uh, i think that's a real problem uh, and as scott said there's been no wage growth for a long time so it's just not sustainable the ata is not collecting our money i think we're in for a whole whole uh, world of pain uh for a few years to come yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, obviously, inflation is, you know, in, in my mind, is caused by all the government stimulus. All this money that's been printed is uh, is, is, fed, is is going to feed into inflation at some point in time. That will feed into interest rates. And the other thing, something that we all understand, uh, but that that isn't uh, isn't something that's talked about in the in the papers. You know, when you've got Whatever the number is in uncollected tax, I mean that is a stimulus. That's a that's a stimulus to the economy. It's like a it's a hidden stimulus. It's a stimulus that everybody in government knows about, but nobody talks about it. But uh, anyway, uh, Patrick, what what what's your call for next year? When and when and what? Yeah, look, I, I agree with uh, Scott and Darren. I don't think we're going to see the, a so-called avalanche or tsunami of insolvencies. However, I do think that. Um, things will slowly start to return to more uh, to, to more typical historical levels. I think the government will be compelled to do anything possible in the next few months um, through to the election to keep the economy and uh, sentiment uh, quite buoyant. So I think uh, more than likely it will be sort of towards the the middle uh, and second half of next year that we really start to see 
uh, the impact. But um, you know, I, I see t- towards the end of next year, uh, I would expect things to return to um, yeah, closer to historical levels. Okay. All right. Well, look, we've kind of gone over time, so uh, we will wrap it up right there. Thank you very much, Patrick Schweitzer, for once again sharing your data and giving us a look behind those numbers. And we will, uh, we will. You, you don't mind if we? I mean, you've shared it on LinkedIn, so you don't mind. We'll put a link in there yeah, to your absolutely. latest report. Yeah, uh, thanks good. a lot, Scott Langdon. It's great to to have you. And uh, um, yeah, thank you very much for joining us and sharing your wisdom. And Darren, as always. Uh, Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming along. Uh, so thanks thanks to everybody. Uh, thank you very much to everybody watching live and to anyone who's listening. Uh, if you celebrate Christmas, then have a happy Christmas. Uh, and to everybody, uh, have a great festive season. Make sure you use plenty of sunscreen. And we will see you in the new year. Cheers.